All right, greetings. Today we're continuing our series of conversations about the key principles in Steve McConnell's new book, More Effective Agile. Steve is CEO of Construct Software and oversees Construct's training and consulting businesses. He's also the author of Code Complete, often cited as the most popular software development book of all time. Uh, for Steve's full bio, you can listen to the first episode in this series. Welcome, Steve. Glad to be here. Thanks, Mark. Uh, as a reminder, More Effective Agile includes suggested leadership actions and a set of key principles that help inform those actions. Um, the key principles that we covered in the fir- first episode were inspect and adapt, start with Scrum, build cross-functional teams, and integrate testers into the development teams. And today we'll be exploring three more principles and many more in the podcast to come. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's go. All right, all right. So our first key principle today is motivate teams through autonomy, mastery, and purpose. And the origin of this, I think, comes from Daniel Pink's uh, seminal book, Drive, which I assume clicked in your mind with respect to agile practices when you were writing the book. Yep. Um, so solid agile practices inherently support the factors that contribute to motivation. Um, and our work here at Constructs has shown that concepts of healthy agile team and motivated agile team are strongly intertwined. So you draw on those three words when you talk about internal motivation in the book, which high-functioning agile software engineers need to have. So I think what's be good for us here is to step through each of these words and unpack them a bit. So the first word is autonomy, um, and this is one strongly associated with trust, something that is a key in a high-functioning agile environment, right? Yeah, that's right. I think you know one of the key points to remember uh, with Agile is that the, the fundamental unit of productivity in Agile is the team, uh, not the individual. And so when we talk about autonomy, mastery, and purpose, we at least have to consider how that applies to the team. Uh, and people's minds naturally go toward the individuals, but we really have to think about how that applies to the team. And I think in particular with that autonomy uh, factor, that's one we really have to make sure we're applying to the team. Mm-hmm. So, so- Tell us some things that, that an Agile leader does to support autonomy in an organization, and maybe maybe as the counterexample, conversely, how some leaders might undermine that. Yeah, I think autonomy is, a, it, it is an interesting one, because, and I think the autonomy, mastery, and purpose are all strongly interconnected when we start talking about uh, Agile teams. Uh, you, it's really difficult to have autonomy if you don't also have mastery and purpose, and I guess we'll get to those topics in due course. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as autonomy goes, uh, I think <laughs> there probably are more anti-patterns in terms of leaders undermining autonomy than there are patterns in terms of leaders supporting autonomy. Uh, obviously, kind of the typical issues like micromanagement uh, undermine autonomy. Um, I think a lot of times teams are undermined because they are simply not being fed requirements. Uh, What we've seen is that the product owner role is uh, fairly often not staffed very well, uh, and sometimes it's not staffed at all. You have somebody who's a traditional project manager who is supposedly putting on the hat of product owner, but that ends up not working very well. So if the team's being starved for requirements, it's not going to be able to be very autonomous. uh, so I think that's that's probably the most common anti-pattern. Uh, we also see a pretty common anti-pattern where teams aren't actually teams. They get assembled and reassembled frequently. Uh, it's hard for a team to develop any true autonomy if they're only together for a few weeks or a couple months at a time. Um, let's see. Uh, what about experimentation, right, Vers- versus insisting on a particular process? 
Well, I think that, you know that's an interesting question. Uh, I think Scrum is a pretty lockdown process, at least to start, uh, and so. You know, experimentation does come into play, but experimentation is a bit more of an expert activity than a beginner activity. And I think, um, I think we touched on this in the last conversation, but you know, we've really found that it works best for teams to start doing by-the-book practices. And I think because uh, many software developers are do-it-yourselfers and just the engineering mindset is one of, you know, we'll figure it out and we'll make it work. A lot of times people who don't really have a very good understanding of the big picture will make changes that kind of make sense to them, but they just don't understand Scrum well enough to be making changes that are, are actually effective. So that's actually an area where you know, I think establishing the baseline textbook practice, if you will, before you start experimenting is, is pretty important. Uh, now, you, know, you can still grant the team autonomy in that where they're you know, going to take some time to to learn how to actually use the practices in their environment. There are always issues associated with uh, you know, how do you do the textbook practice in our environment, and you know, a really common issue is with geographically distributed teams. Most of the Scrum literature assumes that the team is co-located. I think everybody agrees the ideal is co-location, but these days. Uh, it is so common to have geographically distributed teams that are really common hurdle that the teams have to get over is, well, how do we do the daily stand-ups if we're not all physically located in the same room? And then just practical considerations. We're also eight time zones apart or 11 time zones apart. So how do we do a daily stand-up uh, when, you know, it's actually causes a fair amount of wear and tear on somebody to be supporting the right. timing of those meetings. Right. Uh, so um, so other other issues related to uh, the leadership of autonomy, I do think some of it is just trust. Um, and this doesn't have anything really to do with agile practices, but most leaders in software organizations come from the software development ranks. Uh, and I think one of the hardest career transitions for software leaders to make is to give up getting their hands entwined in all the technical details. Right. They want to be right. informed about everything. It's they want to know all it's comforting. the comforting. It sure is. It is. It's 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 basically, you know, under stress people tend to revert to whatever is familiar, not necessarily what's most effective. Sure. And if the leader's feeling stressed, they revert to their capacity for understanding tons of technical details. It's probably not the best thing for them to do, even if that's what's comfortable. Sure. I mean, that's kind of another example of that would be this notion of permission to fail, right? Where, where organizations have to be able to do that if they, if they learn something in the process of doing so and, and the learning turns, turns into something that actually changes them for the better. So you have, I think, in tra some traditional management styles, you might have the, that against sort of a penal system where people <laughs> beat on somebody because they did something wrong. Right. Yeah, so penal that's an system is aspect as well, a trust issue. And I think that terminology is exactly right. You know, one of the key principles in the book is to decriminalize mistakes. Uh, so that penal concept is definitely right there. Right. Uh, and right, you can't you can't say that the team has autonomy and then say, but you have to do everything perfectly and never make any mistakes, or you can't have autonomy. Uh, it's a, a given that the team is going to make mistakes. Software development is a highly complex activity. Uh, it's just not possible to get through any project of any size without making all kinds of mistakes. And so I think part of autonomy is that we actually 
have to just accept the fact that there will be mistakes. In the book, I go through a taxonomy of kinds of mistakes. And, uh, you know, there definitely are some mistakes that are better conceived than others. Uh, and I differentiate between calculated mistakes versus careless mistakes. We clearly would like to avoid careless mistakes. Uh, but yeah, the team, you know, the team takes its best shot. And hopefully most of the time, that's a good shot. But every once in a while, it's not going to work out the way they planned. And so we just have to accept that. And, and I think what we get from that is we actually get a pretty strong motivational benefit from the team knowing that it's trusted enough to make mistakes. Right. Uh, there's a really exactly. interesting, right. interesting book in the, I think it was the late 1970s called Up the Organization by Robert Townsend. Um, Robert Townsend was the guy who took over Avis and um, led the advertising campaign that said, uh, we're number two, we have to try harder. <laughs> and uh, anyway, he has a really interesting principle in that book, which is he says, don't underestimate the motivational power of letting people waste money. And when he describes it, what he really means is the same thing we're talking about here, which is, you know, they're, they're going to make mistakes, they're going to cost your organization. And if the only kind of mistakes people are allowed to make are the organiza- are the mistakes that don't cost anything, well, then there we too, try. you're really saying right. we can't really make mistakes. So, right. um, cool. So um, the, the second word in the motivation set would be mastery. And so what, what does that refer to when you talk about mastery? I think it's pretty easy to misunderstand the term mastery if you just take an intuitive uh, sense of the word. In uh, Daniel Pink's uh, Autonomy, Mastery, and Purpose Framework, mastery is really about constantly learning and constantly becoming better. It's not a static state where we have achieved some level and we're going to sit there. Um, Rather, it is actually the ongoing learning process of always uh, becoming uh, better at what we're doing. And, I, you know, Pink says this is applicable to the human race in general, but I think it's especially applicable to software staff because software staff love to learn new things. They love to be experts. And there's a very strong relationship between mastery and autonomy because if you ha- want your team to have autonomy, but they can't actually learn what they need to know to do the job, then there's no reason really for them to have autonomy. And so... One of the things that's really important with autonomy is you can't just turn the team loose and say, okay, now you're autonomous. There actually has to be some support and a plan for the team developing the skills it needs to be, uh, that it needs to have in order to be autonomous. And that includes all kinds of things. It includes learning how to work together as a team, uh, learning how to use the process practices that go with their agile methodology, um, you know, most often Scrum. Um, it, it also includes the team learning how to learn as a group. Um, and it learns to, and it includes to some degree the team actually learning what it means to be autonomous and operate autonomously. And so learning things like, well, what decisions are we really supposed to make? And what decisions Indeed. should we raise our hand and try to get help on? So, so I think one of the implementation mistakes that leaders make is waving a magic wand and saying, okay, you're now self-directed team. Uh, and I think the spirit there is good, but the team actually does need some handholding, somewhat counterintuitively, uh, before it can really become autonomous. 
So it's sort of the opportunity to grow is a key a concept to that, right? That you're, you're trying to give these folks the ability to kind of reach and, and grow. I mean, you, you actually wrote about that in your, in your book, Rapid Development, in 1996. So in a sense, you were way ahead of your time. Well, are you an alien? Yeah. Well, I'd love to take credit for that, but I think I was citing some earlier work by Barry Bame that came out uh, around 1980 or 1985. So, you know, this predates Daniel Pink's uh, work by a very long time. Quite a bit. And, And the point I made in rapid development was just that the motivating factors for software people are not the same as they are for salespeople or general management people. And the opportunity to learn new things, the opportunity to demonstrate technical expertise to your peers, those are strong motivators for technical people. Painting with a broad brush, obviously, you know, some individuals are different, but you know, painting with a broad brush, uh, those tend to be uh, bigger motivators for technical staff than for uh, the more general population. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, do you think with today's talent competition that's out there that, that, that this idea of mastery and opportunity to grow is even more important now than it was back then? It's uh, an interesting question. Um, I think it's always been important. I think the recognition of its importance is higher now than it was uh, certainly when I started my career. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I just think society has changed. You know, the uh, I think now everybody is well aware that, that the world is constantly changing, technology is constantly changing. Anybody who's been alive for more than about fifteen years can remember a time when things were vastly different than they are now. Sure. You know, twenty five years ago, I don't know that that was so true. I and mean, we could certainly point to certain changes, but it wasn't like the whole world had transformed. And so I just think the expectation now of of being able to adapt to change and uh, learn new things uh, is just a, di- a different expectation now. So, and, and the interesting thing about that is I think the expectation now is just more aligned with the way that software professionals have been wired from the beginning. Yeah, I think that's, I think it's very true. So the, 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 the third word in that, in that uh, triplet in this first uh, uh, aspect we're covering is purpose. Right, and this is leaders giving some insight into the big picture. Correct? Yes. Yeah, and I like purpose as it applies to uh, agile teams because it's not saying uh, give your staff super detailed direction point by point. It's saying map out a general vision, let them know why they need to do what what they're doing, uh, and then that supports the idea of autonomy. And I think you know going back to that first point. It's really difficult to have autonomy unless you also have mastery and purpose. Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't have that constant learning uh, ethic, then you're going to have a hard time um, staying autonomous because you just you need to keep learning new things all the time in software. Likewise, if you don't understand your purpose, your ability to make lots of decisions at the intern- internal to your team is just not going to be very good. You're going to be making decisions that actually run counter to the purpose if you don't understand the purpose. So just in the interest of delegating effectively, uh, making sure that the team clearly understands its purpose uh, is just really important. And so that that then ties into other uh, leadership uh, activities like establishing clear vision. You know, vision goes hand in hand in glove with purpose. Um, in the book, I also talk about commander's intent. Uh, so that's a particular way of thinking about uh, purpose. Um, but yeah, I think, and then the interesting thing about all this is that, is that 
you know, you could, could approach autonomy, mastery, and purpose as a recipe for how do we set up uh, self-directing, self-organizing, team and agile. But I think going back to Daniel Pink's uh, book, he's not talking about how to set up self-directing teams. He's talking about how to motivate or what the key factors in motivation are. So to me, one of the really interesting takeaway from all of this is that the factors that set up uh, an effective team are also the factors that support high level of motivation in that team. So if we're, if as leaders we're doing the job well, we're actually accomplishing two really important things at the same time. We're setting the team up so that it can be effective and the way we do that also motivates the team which will make it even more effective. Absolutely. It's a, it's a, it's a fulfilling prophecy to some extent. Mm-hmm. Good stuff. Um, let, let's move on to the second key principle for today and that's develop a growth mindset. Um, you know, whether you look at it from the point of view of the mastery part of autonomy, master purpose, or from the point of view of inspect and adapt, um, effective agile teams maintain a steady focus in getting better. And I am guess that's why you named your book more effective agile as opposed to the most effective agile, for example, <laughs> right, right? Right. It's about giving teams time to improve, right? Well, it's time to improve. It's space to improve. It's setting up a culture that is aimed at improvement. You know, it would be possible for somebody to say, hey, look, Steve, you already talked about mastery, <laughs> and really mastery right. means growth. And so, you know, why do you have this growth mindset as a separate principle? And the reason is because the book is aimed at leaders. And autonomy, mastery, and purpose are about what the team needs. The growth mindset really is about what the whole organization needs, including the leader. So, uh, the leader needs to model the idea of constantly learning. Um, you know, anytime in software when we think we're done, then it's probably pretty close to game over. But we've got to be constantly thinking about how do we get better. Your comment about why I titled my book what I did is spot on, which is, you know, the idea of more effective agile is supposed to be a moving target. Right. You know, it's it's always more. No, I think that's that's completely right. But, you know, uh, in, in reality, uh, with leadership in organizations, there's always pressure in schedules or pressure on scope. So, so how do the better agile organizations that you've worked with make time for that growth when, you're, when the pressures of the business are right in front of them all the time? How do, you, how do they think about that? What's, a good, what's some good ideas there? I think one of the advantages of having been working in the industry for uh, quite a long time now is having a a longer term view of some of these issues like schedule pressure. Schedule pressure is not a new issue. Every generation thinks, oh yeah, we have way more pressure than anybody ever had before. It's not true. Uh, Back in the 1960s, there was an article published in, can't remember if it was Fortune or Forbes magazine, uh, but at the time it said that we had a a 33% labor shortage for software developers. If you want to talk about schedule pressure, how about working in an industry where you're missing Absolutely. a third of the people who need to do the work? Absolutely. So, and I think even in the 1960s, that article commented that because of the labor shortage, every project is a rush rush project. And you know, the reason I wrote my book, Rapid Development, in 1996, more than 20 years ago now, was because every project was a rush project. So this is not a new phenomenon. And I think and I think the number of cases where we truly have that that much of a schedule um, pressure that would cause us to sacrifice overall organizational capability and overall organizational growth in pursuit of short-term objectives, 
there just aren't that many cases where that's truly necessary. And I think people tend to confuse the fact that there's a deadline with the idea that, oh, therefore we have lots of schedule pressure and we have to take shortcuts. Well, we worked with tons of companies over the years that have deadlines. I'm, you know, there's a surprising amount of software that is seasonally driven, all kinds of software that you wouldn't necessarily assume is seasonally driven. You know, there are certain things where you have software that's on an annual release cycle, like tax software or something where the seasonality is obvious. Or gaming, gaming games at Christmas time. Sure, Christmas like time. Right. And there are all kinds of things like that. Like, you know, in the, the mobile phone industry, a huge percentage of the sales occur around um, Christmas holidays. And so that's actually turns out to be an annual cycle. And the perception in the mobile phone industry is that if you miss the holiday sales window, you've basically it's missed huge. a year's worth of sales. Yeah. Um, you know, computer hardware like laptops, surprisingly seasonal and mostly based on back to school uh, sales cycle rather than and some to some degree the holiday sales cycle as well. Mm-hmm. But it, it's interesting. And then there are other things like um, games. Some games are tied to the holiday sales cycle, but games that are tied to professional sports tend to be tied to the professional sports season. Uh, and there, too, if you miss your window on the sports season. The whole point of all this, though, is that the fact that you've got a deadline doesn't mean that there has to be uh, shortcuts made to meet that deadline. In fact, if it's on a recurring basis, you should actually account for that in your plans and realize unless there's some year, some reason that this year is way more critical than any other year, then you should be in a more sustaining mode where, yeah, you do good work this year, but you also need to do set yourself up to do good work sure. and hopefully better work uh, next year. Well, I mean, you used the word sustain. I was going to bring up the idea of sustainable pace when you're talking about development and you're talking about in a growth mindset, having some sustainable pace that makes sense for the the individuals on a team and for the team's workload. Again, that's all related to motivation, right? Just clobbering someone with too much, uh, I think, is is, is a classic, perhaps a classic management style that's been modified over the years. Yeah, sustainable pace is an interesting one from a history of Agile point of view. The early Agile, and and a lot of it actually mirrors what we've gone through at Constructs as a company. Um, I think we were five or ten years ahead of the Agile learning on this one. Uh, You know, the original concept in Agile was 40-hour work week. And we had had that as our original concept at Constructs, but we had already abandoned that idea by the time it came out in Agile. (laughs) Because we had learned that the 40-hour work week is really a proxy for sustainable pace. But, you know, we realized that uh, a lot of us just didn't work 40 hours per week. You know, we work 30 hours one week and 50 hours the next week. Or we might go for a few weeks where we're working, you know, we might be working every day for, including weekends, for uh, several weeks at a time. Exactly. But it's not about, so it's not about every day has to be the same as every other day or every week has to be the same as every other week. It's about how the whole pattern looks overall. Right. And I think sustainable, so Agile then migrated from 40-hour work week to sustainable pace. And I think a lot of people in Agile, and I am critical of this, interpret that as no overtime ever. Well, the fact is that there are actually people who like to work overtime occasionally. It actually can feel good sometimes to stretch yourself. And there are times when you just collectively as a team look at what you want to accomplish and you say, yeah, you know, this is a little bit of a stretch, but we as a team think it's important to do this. So we're going to do it. We're going to make personal investments and investments as a team 
to work on this. And in the book, I make the comment that, you know, for me personally, I don't think 40 hours a week has been my guideline for most of my career. I think a lot of the best work I've done has been done in burst mode. Right. And when I put that in the review edition of the book, I got a surprising number of comments back from <laughs> leaders who said, yeah, that's how I work too. Yeah. I'd never really seen the phrase burst mode, but, you know, it's on for a while, off for a while. And, uh, and, uh, and I think that, you know, there's more of a rhythm there. It's not, it's not steady state. It's more of a rhythm that overall um, is sustainable. And it's, in some respects, it's also how people consume work. If they know they have something on their, in their inbox, some people react to it immediately. Some people need to have that sense of pressure to get at something. And then they just, you know, they, they wait a while before they get immersed and then jump on it. And once they're in it, then you, then you want to be in it. You want to be really working hard on it, and, and that's sometimes you don't even understand how much effort you're putting into it, but it is something that's fun at that point. Yeah, and I think that, you know, that's one of, it kind of goes back to the autonomy, mastery, and purpose point, or really more broadly to the idea of a, a self-organizing team or self-directed sure. team, which is that sometimes, I think the observation is right, that some people need some external accountability, um, but I think in traditional command and control management, the manager takes on the duty of being that external accountability. Sure. The nice thing about a self-directing team is the team takes on the responsibility for the external accountability. And in Scrum specifically, you stand up in your daily stand-up every day and you say, what did I do yesterday? Or how did, you know, the phrasing varies, but what did I do right. yesterday? Exactly. Or what did I do to move toward the sprint goal yesterday? Um, so that external accountability is really just peer accountability. And, and I think, you know, there are lots of, lots of historical uh, precedents that say that people were, will work harder to support their close teammates than they will some, some general purpose. I mean, you know, Eisenhower said that uh, when a soldier takes a hill, it's not for his hometown or his country or his state. It's for the guys that are around him. him. Exactly. And uh, so... Yeah, I think that's the kind of psychology that uh, uh, an effective Agile implementation uh, uh, taps into. Great thoughts. So let's talk about our last key principle today, which is develop business focus. And I think this might be one of my, my favorite parts of this. Um, developers frequently need to fill in gaps in requirements and in direction from their product owner, which, you know, the product owners, as you mentioned before, one of the key roles in successful Agile teams, but even the best POs can't be perfect. And so engineers understanding their business helps them fill in those gaps in the ways that are beneficial to the business, correct? Right. Yeah, so, um, you know, so Constructs over the years has worked with all different kinds of, of software. And requirements get implemented or get detailed to very different levels depending on the kind of software you're working on. You know, in a, a games environment, the software requirements might be secondary to story requirements or art requirements or that kind of thing, but there are still some software requirements there. Uh, in general business systems, often the requirements are stated fairly broadly, and sometimes the teams get frustrated by lack of detail, but there tends to be a fair amount of, of, of generality in the requirements. Uh, in you know, medical systems or safety-critical systems, requirements tend to get specified at a much finer level of detail. So the gaps that need to be filled in by the uh, developers or development team tend to be smaller. Mm -hmm. But what, what, what I've seen anyway is that it doesn't really matter what kind of software you're working on. 
even in medical systems, there are still gaps. They might be smaller, but there are gaps. And the more the software development team understands the business domain, and you know, I use business domain as a very general term. That could mean scientific domain, uh, uh, could mean regulatory domain, uh, but in general terms, just kind of the, the domain the software is written in. The better the software developers understand that, the more often they're going to fill in those gaps in the way that some business person might have intended. And so if you're working on safety critical software, the gaps are small. There aren't that many times when developers have to make assumptions, but there are still some. If you're working on general business systems, the gaps tend to be large to huge. And there it becomes really important for the developers to have the business understanding to close those gaps. And you know, requirements have been the biggest source of challenge in software development projects for you know my Forever. entire my entire time working in the in the software world. And so I don't see this problem as one that's going to go away anytime soon. Yeah, we should do a better job of training and selecting uh, product owners, but you know, as a fallback, we certainly uh, can benefit from having software developers learn as much as they can about the business and. Uh, you know, this is an area where I say there is something that's pretty close to a silver bullet. I don't think there are any actual silver bullets in software, but there are some that are close. And and I think what we've seen is that a best practice for sure is putting software development staff in direct contact with Absolutely. the users of their software or the customers, depending on whether user and customer are the same, putting them in direct contact with the users and customers uh, of the software and it's very common for software developers who haven't previously been in contact with the users to to have a transformational experience when uh, that happens because they tend to view the users as this irritating source of bugs, problem reports bugs. and bugs and you know uh, <laughs> exactly. it's working as designed it's not a bug it's a feature it's, but yeah. um, but from RTFM. the user point of view right <laughs> From the user point of view, it's not a feature. It says it wasn't didn't implement the way right. uh, they wanted it to be. Once the developers have some time, you know, talking to users, watching users observe their software, uh, they typically come back as huge advocates for uh, the users. Sure, and and, uh, and then a lot of those gaps end up getting filled. Well, it better. ties back into the purpose motivation word again, right? I mean, you get you give engineers the opportunity and the access to reach out and connect to customers. That that gives them a fuller sense of that. Yeah, right? purpose purpose in the small and yeah, uh, absolutely. You know, the purpose in the large sets direction, uh, deciding like even which requirements make sense or that you're going to do. Kind of comes into prioritization of which things you do, and purpose in the small is more about. Are we really doing the small things the way that they should be done? So uh, give me some ways to have engineers connect with users on a regular basis that you've seen work well, some examples of, of that. Well, I think that the ideal really is to actually do site visits where you can, where the, the developers will talk to users face-to-face, -face, observe them uh, actually using the software. You know, an awful lot of software, well, for quite a while now, but... You know, when we talk about software, sometimes people think we're only talking about software that shows up on a desktop interface or phone interface. But an awful lot of software is embedded in some other device. So it could show up in, you know, it could show up in a scientific instrument. It could show up in other kinds of lab equipment. It could show up in uh, consumer electronics. Uh, uh, 
you know, it could show up in some manufacturing device. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so a lot of times what this means is if you want to put uh, the software developers in touch with end users, it means like sending them out to the factory um, so they can see what's going on in the factory floor. It means, um, you know, sometimes it means traveling uh, somewhere. I mean, a lot of times it means traveling somewhere. Uh, and, uh, okay, so, but, so that's the ideal. Uh, as a fallback position... You know, I think that having developers listen in on support calls uh, can be a good step. I don't think that's nearly as good as... Good and bad, right? You know, sometimes you want to hear some people that give you support to say, I love this feature. This is really good. <laughs> I right? think those calls are rare, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, ah, come on. But yeah, so so I think that's okay. Um, usability labs are certainly can be effective. That's right. you know, bringing the users to you and then you know, watching them behind a one-way glass or whatnot. Um, you know, absent that, uh, watching videos of users trying to use the software. Um, right. You know, once upon a time, Intuit had this program called um, Follow Me Home, which actually they would literally connect with people in the software store. Back when we them. had software stores, they would follow the customer home, watch them, you know, install and try to use the software. And they had a goal for the amount of time it should take between when the person sat down at the computer versus when they started to become productive using the software. Um, so that's yeah, a kind of extreme example of, of uh, getting in touch with the end user. But, but the spirit of that really is, is about right, I think. So you, you, I think we've all had an experience when you look at over somebody's shoulder who's typing and, you, and you're trying to find something. You go, let me, let me drive. Get, get out of the way. Right? So uh-huh. I, I can see that frustration with a, with a, a developer who was, had an intent for how someone is supposed to use the system, and as as they start using it, and they expose the fact that that's not how the user ended, yeah. ended up thinking about how to do that. Right. This isn't really in the book, but I think one one occupational hazard for software developers is that most software developers like complexity. You know, we get into the field because we like complex, thorny problems we can sure. sink our teeth into. But most end users are intimidated by complexity and avoid it at all costs, and so. It's just very classic in software that developers tend, left to their own devices, will build grossly overly complex uh, software and will include all kinds of features that nobody actually wants. And so, and, and in doing that, will obscure the features that people really do want. Right. And so, you know, and this is essentially usability 101 in software, but uh, I think that it takes developers a while to realize that and they need they need some experience in seeing people get frustrated by excess uh, complexity that the developers thought was cool, but that the users didn't really care about. <laughs> Absolutely. So I'll, I'll challenge you on one aspect of this, and, and this is you know, when, you, when you're talking about trying to introduce uh, users to customers and getting more interactivity like that, there's the proxy, the proxy that the product owner plays in typical teams is that, right? They're supposed to be the liaison to the business, liaison to the customers. So sure. won't a product owner feel like there's been some sort of authori- authorization to go around them in that sense? Oh, I'm sure there are product owners who would feel that way, but I, I don't think there's any reason for them to feel that way. I mean, the whole point of this is to be the most effective team possible. Right. Um, the idea that the product owner should have a monopoly on understanding of the customer's doesn't make any sense. The product owner is still the one who bears primary responsibility for understanding customer needs and prioritizing customer needs and communicating those to the development team. 
the product owner is going to be the one that's in extremely frequent contact, ideally with end users and customers, right. meaning you know weekly or daily. Uh, and when I say the developers should be in regular contact, I'm not saying they should be necessarily in daily contact. You know, we're saying I'm saying in the small, right? Yeah, I, I'm okay. saying you know a few times a year, you know, two, three, four times a year. There's some sort of dedicated effort to have the developers put on the end users or customers uh, point of view and get some really vivid way of seeing that uh, but it's not day-to-day like it is for the product owner right well we, we've talked a little bit about the product owner role and, and I think you alluded to earlier in the podcast that you know, we've seen a lot of organizations who've gone without a product owner and, and and you know I've seen it in my own conversations with clients where they continue to say well we're still looking for the product owner we have not and, sure. you know, a year later we're still looking for the product owner yeah and they usually say because uh, we can't afford to have a dedicated product owner exactly exactly yeah. so you know I think the idea that a product owner would be this omniscient person it's probably hard to imagine it, it is what they refer to as a single ringable neck in a, in a role and relationship, but I think uh, ideally maybe a product owner learns from developers who do interact with the clients and they see the interactivity and maybe that lets the product owner grow in that role. <laughs> yeah, the product owner is not supposed to be God or they're not supposed exactly. to be beyond reproach. The idea that the product owner is going to come in and dictate to the development team and the d- development team is never going to have opinions where they ask questions or push back on certain things. I don't think that, even if you set it up that way, I don't think that would be healthy. Uh, I think the idea that the development team has enough understanding of the customers that from time to time, product owner will come in and say, you know, here's what I think we should do. And the developers will say, yeah, but what about that site visit we did two months ago where they told us this, that, and the other thing? You know, I think that's healthy back and forth. And you know, what we want is we want the development team to have that understanding so that that sort of back and forth can happen. Otherwise, obviously that scenario changes where the product owner comes in and says, let's do this, and everyone says, okay, and then you end up delivering something that is not what, right. in some cases, is not what the end users want. Uh, so then we've we've wasted time. Uh, if we can circle back a little bit to the point you made about not having product owners, I think that's an important point because... Right. The the, ra- the rationale of we can't afford a product owner, I think, is incredibly misguided. You know, industry data for a really long time, and certainly Constructs' experience matches this, is that the single largest cost driver for most projects, including Agile projects, is unplanned rework. An awful lot of that unplanned rework comes from either vague requirements or misunderstood requirements. Poorly defined or whatever. Poorly defined right. requirements. Right. Uh, and... I think it tends to be a little bit less painful on Agile projects because the cycles are shorter and if we made a mistake one iteration then maybe we fix it the next iteration. The fact that we in essence wasted a two-week iteration, sure it's painful that we wasted two weeks but unlike the waterfall days where we might work for a year and then discover that we had wasted six months, uh, that's super painful. Uh, We can nickel and dime our way to the same total on Agile projects, but because it happens iteration by iteration, it doesn't feel quite as bad, but right. it's still there. So, you know, I, I blanch whenever I hear uh, a company we work with saying, I can't afford a product owner because the right response really is, well, how can you afford not to have a good yeah, product owner? Absolutely. 
and we, we've seen so much evidence of that. I think my producer is giving me the eye right now, so I think we need to wrap from today. You're probably sitting in your garage listening to this anyway, and I hope you have your engine turned off. But um, Thanks so much again for joining us today, Steve. It's been a great, uh, a great experience, and I hope you'll join us again shortly for the next iteration of this. Thanks, Mark. Be sure to tune in again for another episode of Inspect and Adapt, the Constructs podcast. Until then, this has been Mark Griffin as your host. Jesse Bronson has been on the audio controls today, and Devin Musgrave is our producer. Have a great next sprint. If you enjoyed this episode and you have comments or would like to talk with one of our practitioners, reach out via email using comments at constructs.com. Again, that's comments at constructs.com. We'd love to hear from you.